Okay. Welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Uh, Scotty Hertz. Slightly chilled down here in the bunker, but everything's okay. <laughs> I'm going to start burning old paperwork or something to heat things up. <laughs> Such as January, right? Start burning documents. <laughs> burn, burn the old, old newspapers that you saved, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully in a, a bona fide fireplace, I would imagine that <laughs> might take some work. We're not at that point yet in the pandemic, are we? I said, just burn it. Only burn under, everything. Only under the cover of dark so you don't give away the location. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just if you see smoke somewhere in the ward, don't yeah, worry. You'll just, know. You'll be able to come get me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> take me away somewhere warm. St. Barth's or, you know, who knows. <laughs> Open Sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. You can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians. Which this week will be the liberal candidate running in Guelph for this spring's provincial election, Rochelle Devereaux. We will talk about uh, her being on the front lines of the pandemic with community health and what a liberal government might do differently if they were in charge for this pandemic or for future pandemics, maybe. That will be at the bottom of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about the far-right parties that are going to be running in this year's election, too. Will any of them be a threat to uh, Doug Ford? But first, is it all the anti-vaxxers fault and we we you know we as we were talking at the beginning of the week about what we we're going to talk about on the show we were going to kind of focus on you know this whole thing about um the, the, some of the discussions in the media lately about how um maybe treating people who are vaccine hesitant or anti-vaxxers or people who just haven't been able to get a vaccine yet as kind of an homogenous mass of people who are making a political stand about COVID-19. That has taken on something of a bit more urgency this week with Quebec announcing that they are going to tax the unvaxxed. Um, Francois Legault says uh, it will be coming soon. It's not going to be uh, $50 or $100. That wasn't uh, big enough. For Francois Legault. Um, the exact details are unknown, but now this is a sort of a political hot potato to vax the or tax the unvaxxed. Yeah. <laughs> what are they calling it in lieu of that? Not the surcharge, or he had a slightly different spin on tax, but he's not calling it a tax. But well, because <clears throat> nobody wants to pay a tax, but the, you pay a surcharge, it might be getting surcharge. you might be getting tickets to Steppenwolf. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, yeah, every, every, everyone else is calling it a tax. So they uh, uh, went th- uh, the whatever night it was. The news that they went ran through the premiers. They're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so some of them were a bit more diplomatic, and I think Trudeau tried to be as well. Did a little bit of a dodge, but he's like, but we, you know, we have to do something. So he didn't. He didn't outright say no, but no, he's he's doing the usual. It's not really his place. It's up. To the provinces, yeah, and this—I mean, you know—it's one of those things that sounds great on paper, and it gets people riled up. And it sounds like a whole ton of people in Quebec signed up <laughs> to get vaccinated, <laughs> knowing that this might be coming. So maybe that's the wisdom in it. It's like, oh, if I do this, it was the same in Quebec with the 
uh, liquor and weed stores, right? It's like, okay, right. you're going to have to show, oh, okay, I better, I better get vaccinated because I'll miss out on all those fun things. <laughs> but I, th- I believe the Quebec stats are with the, of, you know, the 10% that are unvaccinated are 50% of the people hospitalized mm-hmm. with serious things in Quebec. And I'm sure it, it parallels in other provinces. I think Canada wide, it's 42%. Mm-hmm. So the people that are in ICUs and on the heavy equipment, let's say, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, we've, we've all seen it. It's like, how do we even know how this works? If somebody does, I, well, I guess we'll get to that in a little bit, maybe. Um, but yeah, so that's who is taking up the space in the hospitals. And it's like, but the, the, pro- there is a bit of a problem with it in that the narrative is a bit dangerous and it, it's leaned that way in other places. I think it was in the national post, mm. of course, with, uh, well, you know, they should pay for everything. Mm-hmm. People who are unvaccinated in the hospital should pay for everything. And that is slippery slope stuff because mm-hmm. the problem with that is that leads into the whole narrative of private. If you, it's essentially privatizing the unvaccinated, right? You right. should just pay for everything. So by extension, it becomes everybody should just pay for everything. And we've seen that in places where the, the slack is being picked up by private industries whether it's the the rapid testing right it's like well we can't cope so go to the let's just say drugstore x we all know who i'm talking about <laughs> or the uh what is the name oh i'm gonna forget it the uh the private health uh company in toronto that to great fanfare opened up the uh a vaccination clinic right right so rather than it being part of the local health or this this let's say the state It's no, no, we'll fill that gap. Oh, there's a problem. We'll fill that gap. So as much as people would like to punish the unvaccinated and people have various reasons, as we've talked about, for being unvaccinated and some can't avoid it, like say, oh, I don't know, a four-year-old, like they're not going to charge them, obviously. It is slippery slope time with Mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, I find the National Post endorsement of... uh... (laughs) of uh taxing the unvaxxed interesting considering like their other big uh piece this week was from jordan peterson who oh. a- apparently spent a couple of hours with uh on, on the phone with a call center at his bank and decided that it was the greatest crime anyone's ever suffered in human history and <laughs> cl- clearly a sign that humanity is falling apart um but yeah it, it does feel like scapegoating and again i having been to a lot of anti vaccine or vaccine hesitant things and being around those people. um, A lot of them are sort of being led, um, led by the nose with like the reasons why they're not vaxxed. And a lot of them that like, I, I, and again, it's really tough to say, but we're talking about a group of people who aren't necessarily convinced of the science. And perhaps if they had an opportunity to sit down with a family doctor and you got to keep in mind this is canada even though it is canada not everybody has a family doctor mm-hmm. especially here in ontario there are a lot of people without family doctors there are a lot of people who can't uh get the medical officer of health on the phone or on zoom for a half hour to talk about covid stuff and um you know it's, it's people without that access and we, we get into this a little bit with rochelle in a couple of minutes but uh you know things like language barriers Things like uh, computer barriers, things, I mean, things we take for granted, like, you know, I can sit in front of my computer all day and 
refresh public health, looking for uh, uh, a good, uh, a more immediate time to get vaccinated. Or, you know, I know people who know people and um, I can refresh Twitter and I can see a post from somebody saying, oh, yeah, I just walked past, you know, this place where there's a vaccine clinic and there's nobody around. And if you, you, you know, you can get down here in 20 minutes, you'll get your shot and be done. That's not, that's not always possible with people. And I, I think what the, we, we talked a bit about this last week with, you know, Trudeau basically putting anyone who isn't vaccinated over his knee, uh, at least, you know, verbally um, this is not always a choice people have. I mean, I was at the mall, over the Christmas break, just sort of like incidentally passing through, but it was like four o'clock and the vaccine clinic was all closed. It was all dark inside. Mm. And, you know, there are people who work um, over the, there are people who work over the holidays um, and some of them aren't available until after four. Some of them aren't, you know, maybe available to six or seven. And so these are very big issues. These are also systemic issues too, um, that speak to issues, uh, you know, what you're getting at issues with the whole health system, that things are Mm -hmm. not equitable, things are not accessible. And to sort of say, Hey, it's all these people who are trying to take a stand because they're anti-vax. I just, I, that's just not the truth. When we're looking at the whole province, it's like something like 16, 17% of people who aren't vaccinated, yeah, I mean, those sometimes those groups look pretty big and when they're all gathered together in like Waterloo, Uptown Waterloo. But uh, I guarantee you, 16 to 17% of the province is not taking an anti-vax stand. There are a lot of people in that 16 to 17% who just for a whole wide variety of reasons haven't got their jabs yet. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the hesitant and the anti, especially the ones that are vocal about it, is... I is a subset and we should probably treat that separately from the people that can't get vaccinated because of various reasons and inequity. I mean, you, you have the privileged side of it, the Jordan Peterson yammering as usual <laughs> thing, but you also have a ton of people. And I was thinking about this when they're talking about the truckers and how the they're saying that trucking is going to screech to a halt. They are maxed out as well, right? Yeah. They're, they're not necessarily considered essential because the, the E word has disappeared in 2020. 22. There's a whole bunch of us now that aren't essential that were. Uh, I'm saying are because I, I'm in one of the categories, but they did. They, it's, it's just not mentioned anymore because they're accepting the fact that this is going to steamroll over everybody, right? Mm-hmm. But when they're, the factors include people's gender, ethnicity, the job that they have, you can't necessarily just drop everything and run to the UC and wait in the line for the rapid tests because you have to work. And your workplace doesn't do that. And I'm actually surprised that they didn't have something resembling um, booster shots or any kinds of shots at the border crossings between Canada and the U.S. because that would make total sense. Mm -hmm. There's also the situation with many indigenous, both people and uh, uh, those in a reserve situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bearskin Lake in particular. I mean, there's an excellent example of, of inequity. Mm-hmm. And also distribution of resources where it's like, well, we really need this many people. And they were sent a few uh, Canadian Rangers, right? Mm-hmm. There's people up there working that are exhausted. The place is wood heated and they need to distribute wood and other resources because everybody is isolating in an isolated community, right? <laughs> yeah. So it could, same country, completely different scene, right? Yeah. And, and I'm trying to dra- jam a lot in here. The homeless situation, and particularly in shelters, is out of control by the sounds of it in terms of outbreaks 
and how that's being treated just because structurally it cannot be fixed. It's been a mess for a long time. They cannot accommodate something like COVID and in particular Omicron, which is ripping through everything and people who are incarcerated, 70% of people in jail are waiting for their chart. Like they're waiting to go They're in remand. They're, they're, they're not in jail. They are in mm-hmm. the jail system, but mm-hmm. they are not jailed. Mm-hmm. And it, it is on fire right now. You know, two and three to a cell. Uh, you're getting it. You're you're getting COVID, and it's like, have they done that? You know, it's in terms of ventilation and all these things that we're trying to to balance and do, or even PPE. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to, to deal with a surgeon like that, right? But it's mm-hmm. so that there, there's the other end of the scale, right? And so it's a big scale, but it's. You know, it's not being addressed. We, we were more likely to hear about, like, there was that, the woman that got, had dinged for going to check her, one of her many rental properties. And I have to pay 7000 to get across the board. You're more likely to hear that story or yeah. a gym or, you know, there is gym, restaurant, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. The government isn't doing enough. That's the, that's the storyline in main media. Whereas there's uh, this whole other roiling thing going on in the background that is never, never addressed. Although we're doing it now. So there you go. <laughs> well, speaking, I mean, speaking of homeless people, uh, there was a story from Global in Edmonton of like emergency room workers reporting uh, like people paying homeless people to get vaccine shots. And one report of one guy who got like seven shots in a day oh um, so that, you know, this is like the privileged system at work. Um, somebody who's got a lot of money. But not maybe not a lot of brains. Um, Djokovic level or not? Well, yeah, I mean mentality, but yeah, yeah. exactly. They're paying homeless people to take their shots and then getting the proof of vaccination. So like, (laughs) I got my proof. I fooled the system, and it's like, well, all you're doing is kind of like putting other people in danger, because as we've seen, um, being vaccinated is not necessarily a defense from getting sick. It will probably protect you from getting really, really, really sick but it doesn't necessarily stop you from getting sick. And, you know, you want to be mad at something like absolutely be mad at these people who have, you know, more, you know, can give a homeless person $2,000 or (laughs) more likely give somebody who's getting a cut of that $2,000 and giving uh, the homeless person a stipend. Um, Yeah. But absolutely be mad at, be mad at the Djokovic's of the world too. Absolutely. Somebody who says like, Oh no, I have a, personal exemption from getting vaccinated and then like violates the rules even as he's complaining about his rights well you know <laughs> anyway i mean that's privilege that's in a privilege. Nutshell. yeah i mean and like if by all means if you want to fight privilege go for it but privilege is a much bigger problem and it's not going to be solved with um you know taking money from people who may have like uh, like legitimate barriers to getting vaccinated is all. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> staying rant with- over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stay, stay rant number two coming up. Yeah. <laughs> rant number two is almost <laughs> definitely coming up. Um, but there are actually some. We all we talk all the time in Canada about like a divided left, but will there be a divided right in the 2022 Ontario election? There might be. Um, first of all, you have. Uh, and, and this party has been a- around for a little bit. The new blue party uh, led by Jim Carholios. Uh, they have one seat in the legislature right now. It's Jim's wife, Belinda uh, Carholios, the MPP of or, uh, Cambridge. 
Uh, she used to be a PC MPP, but she was uh, she voted against um, one of the emergency acts uh, in the summer of 2020 and was thus cast out. We have the return of the Ontario Party, which was founded by Jay Tesek, who believed he could not get um, onto the ballot for the PCs in an Ottawa riding because he was too socially conservative. So he started his own party. Now Derek Sloan is running the Ontario Party. And then we have Randy Hillier, who's starting a Ontario branch of the PPC, which is called the Ontario First Party. And who does that sound like? So um, the question is, uh, should Doug Ford be sweating, vote splitting on the right? Or uh, <laughs> it almost sounds like, and we might get into this in a sec, like uh, these people are going to be kind of splitting their own vote and Doug Ford might be fine. <laughs> Yeah, it depends on how many in each riding and how much they're sucking away, as you saw with the peoples mm-hmm. uh, in the federal at the federal level. Um, and the, but and the interesting thing about the, these ones is that they're they all, they all have seats, but they're they're defectors effectively or have left um, mm. the the not the true the new blue. I think I kept calling them the true blue. But there, I so did I. So did I. There's so many splits in this and it it would seem because i, I came across something that uh, randy hillier and carhalios uh, don't particularly like each other so there's this internecine yes. battle yes. Uh, between all of these fringes <laughs> whereas you know the strength would be if they did come together and form a true alternative and could all get along but that's it, this all comes across like an ego project and if you look at and you have and of course i have because it's always interesting to see how many parties there actually are whether federal or provincial level there are a ton of registered or name reserved parties uh in ontario and most of them swing right right mm-hmm. most of them most of them lean right it's not as if like somebody's leaving the ndp in a half and starting like carrying the socialist mantle, whatever, or whatever you want to call it, right? That's just not happening. Whereas mm-hmm. there's all these subdivides because they're they're mad at the, the mother party, the, the PCs, mm-hmm. or just the Cs or whatever, and have their various <laughs> reasons like, well, Der- oh, Derek Sloan, boy, it was painful to even Google the guy. But um, <laughs> no, really. And who, yeah, um, Rick Nichols who left, who's anti-vax and isn't running again, went Ontario, right? I think not Ontario first, but Ontario. And this is what's confusing yeah. too, right? It's like people, the, these people in particular need to find a home or feel they need to find a home. Although an exception is uh, Roman Baber, who is, who is a bit of an outlier even among this gang in that he's anti-lockdown, but he's vaccinated, Mm-hmm. But he's still travel. He's still traveling in that realms, and he's not. He's he's independent. I don't even call him independent blue or whatever. So like, there's another subset. But the problem with, as we know, with ego project style parties like this, I'm thinking John Trammell, our mm-hmm. favorite, <laughs> our favorite guy from the Poppers. Like that's that's where all of this lies. Because when Sloan ran federally as uh, conservative, he won the seat. And when he mm-hmm. ran as whatever the act that was, he ran as it wasn't Ontario, whatever. No, he ran in Banfardin. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, what, fifth, sixth place, something fifth. like that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same guy, same person. He was your MP, but he ran as an independent. You're done. He came yeah. in behind, or no, above what was it, the Maverick Party? Yeah. And two other is, independents. Yeah. And the Green so, Party, I should add. And the Greens. So you're in that, yeah, you're in that range. And it's like, 
that's the that's the riding speaking is that you are you're running you're occupying the seat for this party not for your own little project and that you know most of them i'm gonna see you know, hillier might have some cred although it's it's weakening by the day uh <laughs> they're just gonna get creamed i mean caraholios is she especially because i was just looking at cambridge uh the last few elections and they've been with like less than five points there's been less than five point differential between the person who won the riding and the person who um was was the challenger um there really hasn't been sort of like a blowout in cambridge since the the days of uh of a jerry mandramake who was like the was elected with the, the the Harris wave and the common sense revolution in 95 and kind of hung out till I think 2011. Um, so, I mean, she's got especially uphill battle, like, especially since I, like, I don't think she was really, I don't mean to say this in a mean way. She wasn't anybody until she ran in 2018, <laughs> but um, she, I mean, th- and that happens when there's kind of like a sweep election was when there wasn't 2018 uh, Sloan, like Sloan, for some reason, as somebody who hates government, seems to just like love running for office. He's one of yep. these people. Um, he ran out in Alberta because I thought he, I think he thought his chances would be better out west. Um, it turns out they were not, and now he's come back and he's running the Ontario Party. And I mean, that's like, like homies, homie, don't play that here. He, he was kicked out of the Conservative Party because he accepted a. <laughs> a campaign donation from one of Canada's biggest white supremacists. Right. Um, <laughs> Paul from, right. Paul from, it's like, you can't really come back from that uh, in Ontario. Um, and apparently you can't run away from it going out to Alberta. It's for Hillier. I mean, he has like entire pages on, on like his controversies. Like, and keep in mind, he wasn't kicked out of the PC caucus or anything to do with COVID. That's like something he's kind of glommed onto yeah. um, since the pandemic started. He was kicked out of the PC caucus for, you know, basically, you know, embarrassing the party in front of a bunch of pissed off parents with, uh, of kids with autism. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, I, I did read that piece on the true blue site about how Hillier is like a Doug Ford plant to, uh, draw support away from yeah. True Blue. <laughs> the, the, the false flag operation for Doug Ford. <laughs> it is, if if true, he, it is brilliant. But I, yeah. I, I like Hillier's really seems like he's been a loose cannon for a long, long time. It well, really seems unlikely that he's involved in anything, even, oh, yeah. Not, even yeah. like tacitly conspiratorial, like True Blue is suggesting. And he was elected for that, well, let's call it Maverick status, right? But sure. that was way, that was. That was way back where the swing was reform. You know, reform was the the word on everybody's lips. Look where that went. It just ended up merging with the conservatives anyway. Well, with the progressive conservatives to become the conservatives. So that that's the thing. And uh, you know, whether anyone likes it or not, the way our politics work here in our system, if we had a system where it was proportional, then some of these people may have a chance. Maybe, mm-hmm. but even then, they would have to consolidate. Like if you have this slate of right wing views that are even more right wing than, uh, you know, the conservatives, or by the same token, the left side too could could potentially do the same if our system was different, but it isn't. And people in Canada elect parties. We yeah. elect party. Whether anybody likes that, or not, you you would need to be 
exceptional, you know, like let's say a Bernie Sanders type, an independent that everybody recognizes and he's aligned with the, the, the Democrats, but he's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, like Independ- independent. Cody Wilson Raybould is an accept is kind of oh, like for a sure. standout yeah. example. Yeah. Yeah, but that's if you took all the boxes about being regarded in the writing that you're ru- you're running in, but also wider recognition. Whereas if you're just sort of I don't know, insurance salesman that sort of has you know when your name was on the bus, uh, <laughs> right? Because that's um, I'm going to say that's generally runs. That's not very fair to insurance people. I'm sorry, but you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> including just... the current mayor of Guelph. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Let's say lawyer then, because that's the All most right. common. That's let's scratch that. <laughs> of course, the, lo- the local PC candidate for this election is a lawyer. <laughs> okay. So there you go. Right. Yeah. And I was just pulling stuff out of the air, but that's, yeah. But I mean, that's it's, it's anybody's yeah. job at all. But there, there is, there is a slice, and this goes within all parties as well. You're just you're you're a person that does such and such for a living. You may have some community involvement, and then you run, but you win because you people are generally voting for the party, and that's the truth, right? Unless you are some kind of superstar, we don't really have a star system here in Canada, particularly in politics, no. right? Yeah. Trudeau, maybe, you know, like maybe. That's because his name's Trudeau, too. Um, well, that's what I'm saying, right? It's like, <laughs> but see, yeah, I mean, Hillier is is going to be an interesting example because he does have the name recognition. But I also question how dedicated he is to starting a new political party and how dedicated he is to just be part of the circus. Because I mean, th- throughout the pandemic, he's like wherever there's like a show to put on, he's there. Um, yeah. Like he went to the the Hand of God Church in Elmer, which is like on the complete opposite side of <laughs> Toronto from where his, yep. his writing is. So, you know, he's, he loves showbiz and, you know, does that necessarily translate into good politics? Well, not really. Cause that's again, that's not how our politics work. So. Yeah. And that's, that is the one thing that all this gang we're talking about have in common, right? That's mm-hmm. what it's about. You need to go to the anti-lockdown thing and need to need to somehow be a, have a presence but it's not a presence that will get you elected. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to wait and see. And uh, we will taking be- bets now. Right? <laughs> taking bets now. Uh, online gambling, not quite. Friendly legal, bets. Yeah. Friendly, Friendly bets, bets. No money. Friendly bets are okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we will have to leave that there. And uh, speaking of elections, well, we have an election candidate after the break. You are listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. our Royal Cat Records pick of the week, Royal Cat Records 21 MacDonnell in downtown Guelph. And that one's right up our alley in terms of instrumentals from the 1970 movie 
Call me Mr. Tibbs. Probably one of the most famous lines in 20th century Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Uh, From the movie, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, the sequel to In the Heat of the Night. And that is, of course, in honor of Sidney Poitier, who left us at the age of 94. What a life. Mm -hmm. No, that's... uh... Yeah, he had a really good year in 1967, the year In the Heat of the Night came out, because I was um, too sir with love In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, yeah. So that was all in one year. And yeah, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs was number 16 on AFI's list of 100 movie quotes. What's number one? Here's looking at you, kid. Uh, no, it's frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Oh. Oh. Uh, here's looking at you, kid, is number five. Oh. And I Let think check this list out. Yeah, it's, well, it's on wiki. It's, uh, I think Casablanca is noticeable or notable for having several oh, yeah. entries on the list. Yeah. Five, six, six entries on the list for Casablanca. Uh, we could talk about movies all night. And that's but... end credits for this week. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Um, we did an interview this week with Rochelle Devereaux, who you may know. She is CEO of the Guelph Community Health Center. So she knows health stuff and, in fact, uh, has been uh, out in the community um, helping to deliver vaccine boosters. The Guelph Community Health Center has been doing that work Uh for the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, helping get boosters out. So she has been busy doing that kind of stuff, but she's also has a burgeoning political career. She is running for the liberal party of Ontario to unseat Mike Schreiner here in Guelph in the next election. So we are going to talk about how she's sort of experiencing the COVID picture right now and uh, how things might be politically different. If uh, Stephen Del Duca is in charge and all that good stuff. And we'll hit play on that interview right now so rochelle Devereaux, thank you so much for hopping on with me today hi adam it's great to be here uh i realize you've been sort of uh i guess out of um on the bench as it were sort of dealing with the, the public health situation um but you are the ceo of uh, the community health center and i know that you guys have been doing a lot uh, with vaccine clinics and things. In fact, I got my booster at a community health vaccine clinic. Oh, I'm Sheldale. glad to hear that. Oh, great. So um, what's the last couple of weeks been been like for you? And I guess we can still call it your day job, but I mean, what's, you know, I, I guess, uh, how, how have you guys been handling the, the rush on for boosters and uh, this new urgency? That's a great question. So for those who are listening and and don't know, the Guelph Community Health Centre is a comprehensive primary health care model that delivers physician and nurse practitioner uh, primary care with wraparound team care, depending uh, on the needs of our uh, of our community members. For those who have barriers to uh, to health and well-being in the city of Guelph, uh, so uh, from the beginning of the pandemic, we have been on a continual uh, pivot because, as we know, the needs of the community have also uh, drastically changed, and so uh, that includes uh, for our our client base. 
Uh, and so, yes, you're right, Adam, in December, uh, we have uh, deployed many resources to expanding access to boosters because we know the Omicron variant uh, is best protected against with, uh, with three doses uh, of vaccine. And so we have been delivering three to four vaccine clinics uh, across the city, uh, both in, as you said, Shelldale neighborhood where you were able to get your vaccine booster, uh, but also at our downtown location and then also bringing mobile clinics uh, in partnership uh, with our many organizations that we work alongside uh, in the community, uh, such as uh, an outreach clinic at, uh, at Royal City Mission uh, and, and with plans to bring outreach uh, clinics as well to some of our other more marginalized uh, communities, uh, especially congregate settings in the city. I, I think that's sort of an important piece of this. And we're seeing sort of a broader discussion now about that vaccine access, um, especially against, you know, in marginal communities, uh, the working poor. Um, we're pretty good in our region in terms of vaccine uptick, but um, I mean, we're still about 18% of the way there to for everyone to be fully vaccinated. But from your experience uh, with uh, the community health, how much of a barrier is sort of like, I guess, class in getting people vaccinated right now? How, how, much, how, much, how much of that is getting in the way to getting us to fully vaccinated? That's a really great question. Uh, we know that uh, that income uh, is an, an absolute barrier to good health for many reasons. Uh, but when we think about those who are, are working to live, uh, particularly in low income jobs, Simple things that we take for granted, like time off work to get vaccinated, uh, flexible uh, time off work for sick days, uh, and paid sick days we know have been a huge barrier uh, to protecting our province uh, province's health. Uh, we uh, we do realize that uh, that that's a real challenge for people who work shift work, who work overnights, uh, or who work long hours. And so the community health center has been offering uh, weekend clinics. We have another one happening this Saturday uh, at, at Shelldale, and uh, and we've also been offering the clinics into the evenings, uh, making sure that those who are able, uh, both they have the close proximity with uh, with the vaccine clinics happening right in their neighborhood, uh, places that they're comfortable being and going so that they aren't going to a new space or a new location that they are uncertain about. And then in addition to that, having those be accessible hours. Uh, we have also offered uh, transportation supports, interpretation supports, uh, as well as a huge part of this is partnership. Uh, and so we don't assume that we have the best, most trusting relationship with every person in Guelph, despite the fact that we might want to. Uh, and so we have partnered with the Guelph Neighborhood Support Coalition, or uh, as I said, Royal City Mission uh, and, uh, and Stepping Stone, where they hold that relationship with that individual and we bring the health care where and when people need it. Mm -hmm. You know, I do want to get into the politics uh we're a political show, so obviously, but, um, you know, this is a lot of important work, uh, you know, uh, vital community work. Uh, what made you want to sort of explore uh, getting into politics and, and, seek, and seek, I guess, this lateral move to, uh, to helping create policy that will surely have an effect on your current 
um, your, your current vocation as, as the head of a community health center. But uh, I mean, all health matters in the province. Why, why, why politics, Rochelle? <laughs> Good question, Adam. Uh, well, I think you, you, you alluded to it, which is there is so much work to be done to create accessible, integrated healthcare services that are designed around the needs of the communities that are, they are meant to serve and those with the greatest barriers. Uh, and, and oftentimes we think about it upside down. Uh, we think about designing programs for the most number of people, mm. the you's and me's, uh, and, uh, and therefore uh, we don't often think about those who will have barriers uh, to care. And what we know from the data and what we know from the social determinants of health is they are often those who, who are not only the most unwell, the most comorbidities, the most barriers to healthcare, they also, from an economic perspective, cost the healthcare system, the social service system, the justice system, the most, uh, most in terms of, uh, of service delivery. And so when you invert that, uh, that uh, equal approach or doing what the most amount of people need, you actually lift up the entire community and the whole community does better. Um, but when did I decide, uh, to be really honest, I'm a runner. <clears throat> and, uh, and about three years ago, I was uh, on a run and I do do some of my uh, best thinking uh, and reflecting uh, when I'm running. And as I was, uh, was running along the Speed River, just uh, right by Royal City Park, uh, I was thinking about all of the different things that we have led in this community. And I was really reflecting on that question of what next, uh, where might I want to, to step next? Uh, and really having such an incredible team at the health uh, community health center enabled me to even have that come into my mind because I have full confidence in our team's ability to exceed the needs, of, uh, meeting the needs of the community uh, in my absence. And so that allows you to, to dream and to think about where you'd like to go next. Uh, and as I was having that thought to myself, I thought exactly what, what you just suggested, which is we have made such incredible gains in this, in this city of ours. We have some of the greatest uh, health partnerships and are one of the leading Ontario health teams in this province. We have uh, formed an adverse childhood experiences coalition that understands the data of how trauma impacts health and well-being. And we have started to implement promising practices embedded into neighborhoods in partnership with so many organizations. Uh, we have some of the best leading practices in this city because of our collaboration, because of our commitment. And as I was thinking about where can we bring that to the next level? Where can we actually begin to, you know, what we do at the Ontario Health Team is we convince the ministry. We try to, uh, you know, draw their attention to the gains that we're making. Uh, but I actually would love to have an opportunity to co-design the policies that actually looked to communities for their wisdom and begin to implement uh, that, that knowledge and evidence on a bigger scale. And so as I'm running on the run, I, I literally stopped uh, and said, like, I want to go into politics. <laughs> and then I came home and, uh, and I uh, said to my family, I want to go into politics. And uh, my husband said, Rochelle, we can barely run this house. 
Like, how are we going to run the House of Commons, like, or, you know, a, a political house? Uh, but it was from that sort of joking space uh, over the next few months as I started to have conversations uh, with many different uh, politicians uh, that were so generous with their time and, and uh, listening to my questions, uh, which were not the, the questions they thought I might ask. You know, what was your biggest mistake? What do you wish you could undo? What was the time that you felt the most alone? And, and what supports did you, uh, did you rely on? As I had those interviews with so many folks, I really felt like uh, I changed from a bit of a joking conversation about I'd like to go into politics to saying I want to go into politics. Mm -hmm. You mentioned like a lot of these programs that have come up in the city, things like impact at the, the Guelph Police Services yeah. with uh, CMHA, uh, welcoming streets yes. for the, the court services uh, support worker. These are things that you know, the, the city sort of came up with technically a provincial jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we kind of give them a whirl here in Guelph and we find the funding for a year and then it becomes five years um, because we can't find that funding from where it's supposed to come from. So I guess how how do we solve that delta? Because it, it's, it's not just going to be a matter of changing government, right? It's going to be a matter of changing um I, I guess a culture of sort of top down, uh, top down politics instead of bottom up politics, which is something I think you were kind of addressing. Yeah, that's a great question. And I can tell from it that you've just finished city budget time uh, <laughs> as well in your role. Um, uh, you're absolutely right. We have so many innovative programs here that community has designed with community uh, you know, so that's that's a big part of how we know that we can make the most changes uh, when you are working uh, and you're designing something for someone. Quite often you get it wrong uh, mm. because you're thinking, you know what they want, and yet you apply your own experience to what you think they want. But your experience is not the experience of always those who you're designing for. And so that's a huge part of what Guelph is known for and is great at. Helen Fishburne at CMHA designs programs with community. And so as a result, they, they actually become pretty oversubscribed quickly because the community has informed the needs and they've also informed the design of the program. I actually think that we, we do need to, to start with community and Ontario health teams really did do that where they, they really allowed communities to play in the sandbox in terms of a design. They set the outcome parameters that they wanted to achieve. Uh, and they started that actually uh, with the former government, the liberal government as, uh, as uh, sub-regions and sub-region planning, realizing that it is at the community level where the organizations come together and using trust mobilize the best care models. What needs to happen at a government level is funding, outcome, and evaluation. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that we are wanting to achieve the goals that we are, uh, that we are, and making sure that we do. And so I do think that we, we often uh, invest our funds in a lot of things that make us feel good with the absence of measurement to make sure that we're achieving uh, what it is that we set out to. On that, uh, I do believe uh, that communities need to have an input into what it is that they're designing. And that's been a real challenge in government funding for a long time where they say, this is funding for this by then, for this much, 
to be used here. And if that's not a need that your community particularly has, because it's right. been informed by, you know, one particular area, you may miss really vital mental health resources or really vital uh, small business investments, because that particular prescribed program that they're attempting to spread across the country or the province uh, doesn't fit for Guelph. And that's really what I think is the role of an engaged uh, community uh, MPP is to recognize what's needed in Guelph. And I think I bring that expertise in having listened to and worked with my community leaders to know that's the approach to then actually have a voice and a seat at the table to inform the broad stroke policy within which multiple community needs can be met. Uh, and so that's where really where I think some of that expertise can come in. But I do believe that the actual changed ideas must come from community. What about sort of the bigger issues? Because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was like the healthcare picture where, you know, we've seen loss of, you know, I found this statistic in the Auditor General's report in 1980, we had about six beds per 100,000 people. In that 2019, that was down to about two and a half beds to 100,000 people. And this is not like a challenge unique to Guelph, it is a province-wide one. So I guess how do we balance like community-specific needs with sort of the, the general broader picture, especially in something like healthcare, where every everywhere healthcare is tapped, everybody's having... Uh, kind of the same issues with capacity and staffing and all of these issues. So I guess, how do we balance the the, the community need with the, the, the broader pictures as well? The things everybody's suffering the same problems with. Uh, so wealth needs more hospital resources. And we know that. And we have, have been aware of that. And a lot of care that happens in the hospital can happen in community if those services are accessible, if those services are well-resourced. And you know, we don't want people to be at the hospital. In mm. fact, we would, you know, building bigger hospitals, despite, yes, that's an acute need, and we need to actually right-size our hospitals first before we, we look at, at smaller. But if I'm successful in my lifetime, Adam, we have small hospitals and we have huge care communities where people can access the things they need for health and well-being in community, in neighborhoods. And in fact, we've done a really good job at preventing some of those negative health outcomes in the first place. And so we actually think that it's odd if we see an ambulance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's my dream future state. In the current state, you first need to be really honest with yourself about what is needed. And so I often talk about this with long-term care. The baby boomers, you would have think they snuck up on us. <laughs> but they didn't. We actually knew demographically how many people we had in the province of Ontario that were aging. We knew based on data how many or what proportion of those would need home care, long-term care, supported living. And yet it shocked us. It, and similar to Omicron, it shocked us. But, you know, we had the data. And if we were planful and if we communicated authentically and built trust with the Ontario population that we're serving. And you said, hey, Ontario, we have this many billion seniors coming, a million seniors coming, and we are going to redeploy surplus spaces. We are going to, uh, you know, five years out, going to have 
free tuition for our PSWs and also for, uh, for uh, we're going to have incentives for nursing. We are actually going to build a system to provide our best quality, highest quality, most efficient long-term care and senior care model that these seniors deserve. Imagine if we would have done that. Imagine mm-hmm. if our surplus schools that are sitting empty in our community spaces had been redesigned to be modular long-term care spaces for a short period of time. Guess what, Ontario? It's about a 10 to 12 year window that we're going to need to make this investment. This is our scale down plan as our population uh, goes back to you know a more normative aging process. We would have invested and we would have been disappointed and, and there would have been fiscal conservatives that would have said, hey, that's too much money. However, if we actually would have projected the ALC costs, the cost of hallway medicine, the cost of, you know, my grandma was in the hospital for six weeks because we didn't have the best, this system that I speak of. And again, why do these things surprise us? Because I don't actually know that we have in government or have had the complex thinking to apply to complex problems. But if I can speak for the, the some of the listeners for a minute, uh, they will surely point out that the liberals were in power for 15 years and the problems uh, you're talking about were not solved. So, you know, why why should we vote for you, Rochelle? <laughs> Well, and and this is not a partisan issue, uh, Adam. I'm not suggesting that the Liberals did any better planning than the Conservatives have on the long-term care file. Uh, You know, I think that it is an approach that I take when I talk about childhood adversity. Mm -hmm. In order to prevent healthcare costs down the road, you have to invest at the front end. And that's a difficult pill to swallow for any government because they need to describe to their populace that they are investing a large amount of taxpayer dollars and there's no quick return, right? On the long-term care file, on the early childhood uh, adversity file, there would be a long-term return. Mm. And you also need to have really great communication to be able to describe when nothing happens. That's a really good thing. Right. And that's really challenging for folks that, you know, that when I see an ambulance, I know care is happening. When I see hallway medicine, I know there's a need. The absence of need is something we need to learn to celebrate Mm. because in times of crisis, the absence of crisis, the absence of, of challenge, the absence of health, you know, core morbidities and poverty, we can celebrate that. Maybe to wrap up and I'll get, Hopefully a quick answer from you on this, but uh, as we're sitting here recording, it looks like the kids go back to school on Monday. Yeah. You're a mom. Um, your, your thoughts and feelings on, on that, are you ready to, for the kids to go back to school? Uh, I am deeply challenged on this, uh, <laughs> this issue. I think all Ontarians can agree that our children need to be uh, educated in schools. The social connection, the mental health uh, s- supports that come as a result of that social interaction and in-person learning are critical. Mm. And I have not seen nor heard about the ways in which in these last two weeks, steps have been taken to actually address those safety concerns uh, that led to us uh, making the decision in the first place. Uh, And so 
the liberal uh, the liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, uh, as well as as many of our our party members and other parties as well, uh, have all been calling for uh, you know infrastructure uh, infrastructure investments in order to improve ventilation, N95 masks, boosters for teachers, uh, educators, and 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 children, uh, and 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 also an education campaign to to reduce uh, vaccine hesitancy for children because we know we actually don't have a very good uh, very good metric on that locally or provincially. Uh, so we've been calling for these things and we haven't seen nor heard them. And I have learned my lesson in just hoping for the best mm. that this government is enacting them. And so if I could see alongside their commitment made yesterday that we are going back to school and all public health organizations have signed off on that, if I could see the complimentary brief that talked about exactly what steps have been taken and will continue to take. My daughter, Adam, got uh, COVID from school in April of 2021. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have vaccine access at that time. Uh, and we didn't have uh, the knowledge that we do now around airborne nature of, of uh, Corona. And so as a result, I believe that if I send my daughter back to school and they become ill at school, have we done everything that we can to protect the safety and well-being of our kids? I'm not convinced of that. I don't think other parents are convinced of that. And so we're in this horrible place, just like healthcare employers, we're on mandatory vaccine. The government is not communicating to us to make us feel secure. And we need to make the decision and the burden sits with us. Hmm. So will my kids go back to school on Monday? I need to see some of the data around what's actually been happening and what are the protections in place and how will I know that my eight-year-old daughter isn't going to get COVID again at school? And, and, and if she does, what are the steps and what are the precautions? Uh, my kids came out of school a week early uh, before the Christmas break because of an outbreak in class. And that's really hard on parents. It's really hard on somebody who's leading an organization to stop the end of the, the middle of the day and go to school and pick up their children for the whole week. Mm -hmm. uh, so that can't be our solution is just uh, give it a go. Let's give it a try. And I'm a bit worried because that seems to have been our approach uh, to policy decision making in the last little bit. Well, unfortunately, on that ambivalent note, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Rochelle Devereaux, we will uh, look forward to chatting again as we get closer to election time. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks, Adam. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Okay, so once again, that was Rochelle Devereaux of the Ontario Liberals running in Guelph. Will not be the last time you hear from her this year. Yeah, this seems like the forever campaign this time around. I guess that's the way it is from now on. That <laughs> just continuously, I saw some flyers in the neighborhood. It's like, wow, it seems early, but mm -hmm. June isn't that far off, right? Well, it's halfway, it's practically halfway through January now. Thank you. God. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the it's way March it 800, 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Good night. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> uh, that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. Stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. To listen to this show again, you can download it from our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or find us on your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, and TuneIn. 
You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson. You can check out my news and politics site at GuelphPolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter. And for all things CFRU, check out CFRU.ca. And check out DJ Sounds Good to Me here at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of The Open Sources. And we will see you then. 